When it comes to air quality, the bad news is that wildfires and air pollution have really degraded the quality of our air. But the good news is that we're all realizing that the quality of our air, and particularly the quality of our indoor air, is really darn important. I'm so excited to tell you about Puro Air because in 30 minutes, this device will remove allergens, dust, smoke, and gases from your room. It uses a stronger type of filter called a HEPA-14, and it filters pollutants at a microscopic level. I keep my Puro Air running upstairs where the bedrooms are all night. I love that it's quiet. Cleaner air just hits different, doesn't it? Check out everything Puro Air has to offer at getpuroair.com. That's G-E-T-P-U-R-O-A-I-R.com. One more time for the people in the back, getpuroair.com. Hello, listeners, and welcome back. My name is Stephanie Safarian, and you're listening to episode 307 of Sustainable Minimalists, a twice-weekly show about intentional and eco-minimalist living. Intentional living, what is that? It is aligning your actions with your beliefs. On today's show, we're discussing how to align your reactions with the person you are today, not the person you once were. It usually goes something like this, right? Someone does something. Maybe your boss criticizes your work publicly, or your partner says something that just hits you the wrong way, or your child stalls when you're trying to get everyone out the door. There's an antecedent, whatever it is, and then there's your go-to reaction. There's no space between the antecedent and your reaction because you're acting on autopilot. There's no intention behind your reaction. You're just doing what you've always done. And I have been there more times than I can count. Well, research finds that in life, there are big traumas, And there are little traumas. We'll discuss them in today's episode as big T's and little T's. We've all had big T's or little T's, all of us. And the reality is that those old traumas, whether they're the big ones or they're an accumulation of the little ones, those old traumas that we thought we had a lid on are still there and they are impacting our ability to live with intention right here and now. Today, I'm speaking with child development expert and podcast host, Jen Lumanlan. I've split today's show into two parts. In part one, we're offering up the traditional interview. So same thing we always do on Tuesdays here. It's an interview in which we get into the why behind taming your triggers. Why should you consider beginning this process? What is the benefit? What is in it for you? And then in part two, after the break, is the how. Jen, I am so thrilled to talk to you today. How are you? Awesome. Thanks so much for having me on. Thank you for coming on. I'm really excited to talk to you about something that I need help with, which is taming my triggers. Before we get there, tell us who you are and what you do. My name is Jen. I live in Berkeley, California with my husband and my eight-year-old, and I am a podcast host. I host the Your Parenting Mojo podcast, and it gathers research-based information on parenting and child development. Um, And increasingly, I'm looking beyond the research as well and realizing that the researchers who are doing it are very much embedded in the culture that we live in, and that if we see things that we don't like about that culture, then (laughs) looking only to the research tends to just perpetuate 
perpetuate those cultural ideas, the more we can kind of step back and critique those a little bit and ask, well, is this really the direction we want to be going in? Then the more we're going to be able to be in relationship that's actually aligned with our values instead of just replicating where culture has taken us so far. I feel as though, first of all, most of us are triggered most days. The word trigger, oh, you're triggered. We hear that a lot in 2022. So let's start there. What on earth is a trigger in science? Yeah, so so being triggered actually has a very specific definition, and it comes from the research on people who suffer from post-traumatic stress disorder, PTSD. So when we say that a person is being triggered, we're actually speaking within that paradigm. And what we're referring to is a person is experiencing something today in a situation that we assume is relatively safe that is reminding them of a previous trauma that they have experienced. And so I think the word triggered is misused a lot because very often people use it in situations when that's not appropriate, when trauma hasn't been experienced. That doesn't mean that only people who have experienced trauma (laughs) can have these same kinds of sensations. There's another word called uh, flooding. So a person who is flooded experiences many of the same kinds of feelings, but it doesn't necessarily originate in trauma that person has experienced in the past. And so what we tend to see when people are experiencing these feelings is they're going into one of a few different modes. Many people have heard of fight or flight, right? So fight is I'm yelling, I'm screaming, there's a bear and I am getting ready to fight that thing. This reaction is very old in us and our culture has changed much faster than we have been able to adapt. And so we're perceiving something as a very big threat when actually maybe it's just somebody saying something to us that landed in the wrong way. So we may fight. Flight is we get out of that situation as fast as possible. We're running away from the bear. Freeze is when we're stuck. And I've seen it described as it's almost like you have your foot on the accelerator and the brake at the same time. So we're not just standing there, we are standing there and trying to move and trying to not move at the same time. It can be very disconcerting for folks who go through that. And then more recently, scientists have actually added a new way that people respond to feeling triggered or flooded. And that's fawn. And we see that a lot in people who have experienced abuse as children, when they may have tried to do anything that they could to placate abuser and to stop that from happening. And so now when they find themselves in a situation where their child or anybody else is having a big reaction, they're going to do anything, you know, okay, come down, come down, I'll give you the ice cream. Or if it's their boss, hey, okay, I'll deliver the report. And so they're trying to placate the person into calming down so that they can then re-regulate themselves. Hmm. So what I hear you saying is that being triggered or flooded, that happens, that's normal. And then our response to such triggering or flooding can be one of four responses. Do people tend to resort to one response generally? Because I'm asking that because I am a fighter. Whenever I am flooded, I think I'm flooded, not triggered. But whenever I'm flooded, I immediately attack. That's my go-to. Do people generally have one go-to response or do people tend to pick and choose depending on the situation? It really depends a lot on 
the person's personality and what happened to them when they were growing up, what kind of tools that they used to manage difficult situations when they were growing up. And those two things intersect to define how the person's going to respond. Fighting was something that you basically learned as an adaptive response when you were a child, that if somebody's coming after me, then the best thing I can do is attack. <laughs> then that's something that you learned. Okay, this is effective. This is protecting me. And now you're in very different situations with very different people. And you haven't unlearned those patterns that you learned when you were a child. And so you're defaulting to the one that was most successful to you. It's possible that different approaches would have been successful in different situations with different people, right? So perhaps attack was successful most of the time, but not with a certain person or not in a certain kind of situation. And in those cases, shutting down was the most effective strategy to use. So it's really based on the intersection of our own temperament and the things that we learned when we were little about what was successful in terms of protecting us from the things that we perceive to be harmful to us. I ask you that question because neither fight nor flight nor freeze nor fawn sound particularly advantageous or beneficial. I can see problems with all of those responses. And so what I find fascinating about your response there is that you're saying that my tendency to fight is based on my childhood. Can you say more on that? When we're children, we have this this desire to belong. And when we're older, we have a, we have the same desire to belong. We have a lot more avenues to try and meet that desire when we're older. We have a spouse, maybe. We have children. We have friends. We have colleagues. We have a whole different array of circumstances we can find ourselves in when we can find belonging with other people. When we're young children, we don't have all of those resources. We basically have our parents or caregivers, whoever it is that's providing for us on a regular basis. And so belonging with those people is basically what we're trying to do. <laughs> it makes us feel safe. It makes us feel loved. And if there's some kind of threat to that, then we're going to do whatever it takes to try to restore that feeling of connection, that feeling of belonging. So yeah, you're absolutely right. None of these fight, flight, freeze, fawn reactions are adaptive in our lives today. We learned them because we were trying to cope with a difficult situation we found ourselves in as a child. And it was the best way that we could think of to navigate the difficult things we were feeling. And as fast as possible, couple things popped into my mind as you were talking there. The first is I'm 38 years old. And so I've been fighting for, <laughs> I don't know, 36 of those years. And it sounds to me as though it can be very difficult to unlearn your response to a trigger or a flooding situation. It sounds very daunting to me, first off. Can you talk about how our culture can can trigger us? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So that's, I love that question. And I want to come to that question, but just to, to address your first question first about how difficult it is. The first step is even realizing that something can be different, right? If we've gone through life and I went through life for many years, not realizing that things can be different. We're thinking this is just my personality and this is just how I am. And if you 
partner didn't say things to me that triggered me, then I wouldn't react in this way, right? So just don't say those things. <laughs> you change how you're showing up in this relationship. And then I won't have these big reactions. And so we assume that it's the other person's responsibility to change when actually we have autonomy over how we show up in these situations. And I'm not saying that it's easy because it's not. We are unlearning these decades of old habits that we have built up. But if we think about it, they're not serving us anymore. They are making life more difficult for us. They're making us show up in our relationships with people we love, with our partners, with our children, with our parents in ways that are disconnecting, that are not aligned with our values. And so to come back to your idea about our culture, our society's role in all of this, I see this as absolutely integral. So when psychologists are talking about the kinds of trauma that lead to someone feeling triggered, they generally talk about two different kinds. So there's big T trauma, which is like the really big stuff. I saw my parent be killed in front of me, or my parent had a drug addiction, wasn't able to regularly provide, regularly humiliated me. Those are what psychologists call big T traumas. Then there are the little T traumas, things like divorce, moving house, moving schools regularly, that by themselves are not necessarily super difficult, but when they're compounded, when the child feels as though they don't have anyone to talk to about it, then those can add up over time. There's actually another layer to trauma that's really created by our culture, and I call it the trauma of unmet needs. The vast majority of our parents want us to be successful in the world. They had our very best interests in mind. Even if they were navigating their own traumas and they were struggling as well, they wanted us to succeed in the world. And the world is the primary cultural factors in this world are white supremacy, patriarchy, and capitalism. The, these are the ideas that say how people can show up in our world. And so how does that concretely translate? If we're female identifying particularly, but if our parents ever said to us, are you sure you want to eat that? You put on a little bit of weight recently, right? They want us to succeed in the world because they recognize that it is difficult to move through the world as a person carrying extra weight. And that idea is deeply rooted in white supremacy. The idea that there is a certain body shape and type that is acceptable and that we need to conform to that type. Otherwise, we're not going to be successful. Same ideas show up in patriarchy, right? When girls are told, oh, be a good girl. Don't rock the boat. Don't be angry. And when boys are told, it's okay to be angry, but don't be anything else. Don't show any other feelings. Whether we're saying these explicitly or whether this is just conveyed through looks or through other children's interactions with our child on the playground, we all got those messages. And then we think about Catholicism. I don't know if you, you had any interests as a child where you were just super into them and your parents ever said, oh, I'm so glad you enjoy doing that, but it's never going to pay the bills. You can't make a career out of that. So what are you actually going to do in life? <laughs> right? I mean, that's capitalism shaping us. That's saying, unless you can make a living out of something, it's not a valid and useful thing to be spending your time on. So go and do your homework so that you can get a real job. Our parents are all the time shaping us so that we can be successful in life, but it caused us to have to stuff down pieces of us that were really important and not acknowledge them. Well, Jen, we're going to take a quick break, but when we come back, I'm going to ask you, spoiler alert, <laughs> what do we do? What's step one, two, and three? We're going to get into that after a quick word from today's sponsor. So many of us have chaotic closets that are crammed full of clothing items, and yet somehow we still have nothing to wear. 
Well, upgrading to high quality and affordable pieces from Quince when you need them is a game changer. They offer organic cotton sweaters and washable silk tops. My 100% Mongolian cashmere sweaters are my go-to. Not only are they affordable, but the quality is top-notch. They wear better than the cashmere sweaters that are double their price. Indulge in affordable luxury. Go to quince.com slash sustainable podcast for free shipping on your order and 365 day returns. Q-U-I-N-C-E dot com slash sustainable podcast to get free shipping and 365 day returns. One more time, quince.com slash sustainable podcast. Hello, Sustainable Minimalist listeners. Are you committed to living a greener and simpler life? Well, meet Home Threads, your ally in more sustainable and minimalist home decor. As the total destination for decor and furniture, Home Threads helps you define your minimalist lifestyle while respecting the planet. Discover their exclusive Haven collection. They use many sustainable materials without compromising on style. And here's the best part. Home Threads always has the best value. It was time. After nine years of living in our home, it was time to replace our outdoor furniture. And my husband and I, we went to Home Threads. We have a Home Threads patio umbrella and a new bench. And oh my goodness, we are so in love. Create a home that reflects your commitment to the environment. Visit homethreads.com slash sustainable and get a code for 15% off your first order. Homethreads.com slash sustainable. Love where you live. And we're back with Jen Lumenlon. She's the host of the Your Parenting Mojo podcast. Before the break, Jen and I were discussing how our white supremacist, patriarchal, and capitalist culture can provide little t traumas. Jen, I need to ask you, we're at the point in today's conversation where we need to look forward. We've been looking backwards a lot in this conversation towards our childhood and the origins of these traumas. Where do we go from here? How can we feel triggered less often? How can we respond in a more proactive way? Help me out. Yeah. (laughs) Well, the first step, which is almost one of the biggest, is realizing that this is not something that is originating in your partner's behavior and your child's behavior in something else that's going on around you. That this is actually coming from things that you have experienced in your life or even things that are ongoing right now. I know that probably a lot of people listening to the show are triggered by mess. And I use the word triggered there intentionally. It's possible that when they were a child, their parent absolutely freaked out when their house was messy. This is about something that happened to me when I was little. And so when we see that, I think it opens up the possibility that what needs to change is not the other person's behavior. I'm not trying to convince you to stop saying the thing to me that is causing me to feel triggered or flooded. What I am doing is learning new techniques to be able to navigate those feelings and frankly, also to get my needs met on a more regular basis. So a big first step is to really take a hard look at what are my needs? What are my child's needs? And how can I meet both of those on a regular basis? 
And then, of course, there are still going to be instances when we still feel triggered, we still feel flooded. And what do we do in those situations? One of the biggest things that I work with parents to do is to create what we call the pause so that right now it may seem as though there is no gap right between the thing and your reaction. They're basically so close that there's no light between those two things. And you may think that's just how it is. I react. That's how it is. If we practice tools that we can use to ground ourselves in that moment, maybe putting our hand on our chest. A lot of parents I work with to keep a hair tie on one wrist. And then when they're in a difficult moment, they transfer the hair tie to the other wrist. The hair tie is there as a reminder of their intention. And the actual physical motion takes two or three seconds, which allows a little bit of time for a breath. And so initially, we, we're not going to be able to do it. We may even look back afterwards and think, oh, I was supposed to do the hair tie thing, wasn't I? And I didn't. And then the next step is I'm, I have the hair tie. I'm supposed to do this thing and it's not going to help. And I'm just going to snap anyway, <laughs> which can be incredibly disheartening because it's like, is this ever going to change? And then finally, one day we remember to move the hair tie and then we're able to breathe. And then maybe something still not super helpful comes out, but things are getting better. And then the next time we can actually take a breath, we can actually pause. And in that pause, we find that, oh, they weren't deliberately trying to annoy me. They didn't do that thing on purpose. And from there, it's okay. So is shouting at my child the way that's going to really align with my values? If my relationship with my child, with this other person, my partner, whoever it is, one of the most important things to me. Do I want to react in this way? Probably not. Okay, deep breath. I'm not stuffing my feelings down. I'm not trying to convince myself that I'm not angry anymore. It's just that I've reappraised the situation and I'm not as angry anymore. And I can still say, I'm really frustrated that, that happened. It, we're not trying to hide the fact that we're frustrated, but we are probably not as angry as we were a few minutes ago, which then allows us to respond to our child from our values rather than reacting in the heat of the moment. Yeah, my go-to emotion when I'm flooded is definitely anger. And I've learned through experience that nothing good ever comes out of my mouth when I'm angry. You were mentioning the hair tie and the pause. I do find as though when I take that deep breath between feeling that flooding and responding, giving myself, even if it's just two to three seconds, to temper the anger... My response, my reaction is so much more intentional. We can have these conversations with our children too. Even pre-verbal children, we can try to understand what their feelings are. They're feeling frustrated. They're feeling angry. They're feeling tired. They're feeling hungry. What need were they trying to meet? We talked about collaboration, feeling heard, feeling acknowledged. Our children often have needs of, they want to feel connected to us. And also they want a sense of autonomy, right? They want a sense that I have some kind of say over what happens in my life. And if we can see what those needs are, very often we can find ways to meet our need and our child's need at the same time. So if your child is able to talk through this with you, what types of conversation starters or probes would you suggest to start these conversations? Yes. Awesome question. So the best place to start is with what we call a non-judgmental observation. So if you are noticing that you're, there are a lot of toys out on the floor in your child's room, then you open the door, you walk in, you're like, oh my goodness, this place is a mess. <laughs> so if I'm saying that to you, Stephanie, this place is a mess. How do you feel right now? Not great. 
do you want to work with me to clean it up? No. No. <laughs> we're immediately disconnected. We're not setting up that collaboration. And so that, that was a judgment. I made a judgment of that space. Whereas if we were to come in and, and we're still genuinely surprised, oh my goodness, I see toys on the floor. Then we're not judging the situation. And it opens up the possibility of sharing how each of us feel about the situation so that we can work towards a solution that meets both of our needs. Instead of shutting that down, because when I judge that situation as a mess, you're immediately disconnected. You don't care what my feelings are. You don't care what my needs are. You're out of that conversation. And think about how that multiplies through all the different interactions with our, we have with our children about how they dress and about what they eat and about things that are important to them. And every time they resist us, we oh, just come on. It's not that big of a deal. You just skinned your knee. It doesn't hurt that badly. Or why are you stalling again? Why do we have to make this so hard? We judge our children all the time. Whereas instead, when we can say, it seems like we're having a hard time with this right now, right? It's not my fault. It's not your fault. We are having a hard time. Let's try and understand how each of us feel in this situation. Let's try and understand what each of our needs are. And let's try and work towards a solution that actually meets both of our needs. Hmm. It sounds so easy when you say it. <laughs> it does. Yeah. It's very much a case of I, I don't believe that this can change. This is not going to happen for me. It may happen for you. It's not going to happen for me. And then oh my goodness, I created a pause. <laughs> I suddenly saw that when I understand my child's needs, even if I'm not able to meet them in that moment, if I can communicate that I'm trying, then that loosens something up between us and helps us to feel like we're in more of a collaborative relationship. You start to see little changes. And the more you see those changes, the more it builds, the more you're able to create the pause, the more you're able to meet your needs on a regular basis. So you're not feeling tapped out all the time, so that you're not feeling as triggered or flooded as often. I think that's a great final word for today's episode. It seems like this could be a daunting process, changing your reactions to triggers. But if you work at it, it's absolutely possible. That's what I hear you saying. Jen, tell us where we can find more of you and your services online. Yeah. So everything I do flows through yourparentingmojo.com and the Taming Your Triggers workshop opens up twice a year. We're actually opening up in October, the 2nd through the 12th. So if you'd like to find out more about that workshop, you can find it at yourparentingmojo.com forward slash Taming Your Triggers. Well, Jen, I want to thank you so much for coming on the show. You're so welcome. It was so much fun. Listeners, that's a wrap. I have linked to Jen's workshop, aptly titled Taming Your Triggers, in this week's show notes at mamaminimalist.com forward slash 307. Her workshop officially opens up in a few days, October 2nd, but if you go to her website now, you can get on the mailing list to be notified the second it does open. Now, as always, if you receive benefit from this show, if the content is helping you in your life, please leave the show a quick rating or review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify if you listen there. If you don't listen in either of those places, kindly tell a friend about the show, help it grow, and thank you so much. I will see you on Thursday. As always, reach out if you need me and take care.